Greetings, God's beloved. Thanks for tuning in to Messages of Hope, the sermon podcast from Living Hope Lutheran Church in downtown Las Vegas. Our reading this week comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. It's Pastor Matt Metavellis preaching on All Saints Sunday. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now for most of my life, being a saint meant effort. I imagined that holy life worked the way that ordinary life worked. Life was effort too. Brush your teeth, clean your room, get good grades, be nice, love people, feed people, say good things, do a miracle or two. So I thought the measures of sainthood were just on the top rungs of the ladder of of the ladder of effort that made uh, human life. Sort of like a spiritual version of extra credit. My knowledge of saints as a child came from church windows like the ones uh, that we have here and maybe from the St. Francis statue that we kept in our backyard. Sainthood was all about halos, radiant light, good deeds, and churchy athleticism. You know, all that stuff that is beyond normal humans. I was at a party uh, last night and somebody was telling me, you know, I'm not a saint. I'm not a saint. And I went, well, God might have something to say about that. Now, I, <laughs> I went to a uh, Catholic school that did nothing to alter this picture that saints were these kind of spiritual superheroes. Now, the namesake of my school was St. Ignatius Loyola, and he wrote a prayer that we said every day in homeroom. I still say this, Lord, teach me to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed for wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not ask for reward, save that of knowing that I do your will. And try to ask your teacher for less homework after saying that prayer every day. Right? I didn't grasp then what I know now as a Lutheran minister, because Lutheran catechesis is horrible, but uh, I didn't grasp what I know now as a minister, that saints are made in baptismal fonts. Sainthood for me as a young man came instead from the, food, from the boot camp of serious striving in daily life. Few actually got there. The Pope would probably not ever know your name, but as long as you were making the effort, it counts. And I still think it's funny how people relate to clergy as if we are these kind of spiritual athletes. Uh, at a wedding I did a week ago in New York for Marissa's family, I was walking around in my clergy collar around a bunch of ex-Catholics or Catholics that maybe uh, you'd see around Christmas or Easter. And people insisted on giving me drinks and then letting me cut in line. Right, I was in. I, I heard the scallops were really good, so you know, you guys that know me know how I do. I'm like, well, I'm going to go get those, and you know, sometimes food gets in the way of propriety. And I reached over this poor old guy, and then he he just I apologized, and he patted me on the back and said, "Oh, I need all the help I can get. You just get all the scallops you want." Right? 
The thought must be that, that people who work for churches must put in more time praying or being good or just absorbing positive vibes from God because we stand a little higher on some pecking order. Let me assure you that's not true. And at least for me, it's not true. The work we do is just like any other work. And the times that my work feels powerful and uplifting are super rare. You've probably heard about it when I have because most of my day is just the slog. I'm juggling a million things, work, family, just like everything else. Doing holy quote-unquote work doesn't feel really holy to me. It feels like just a job. The times I do remember to pray or talk to God in the midst of it are more rare than I'd like them to be. Usually I'm apologizing or getting a scolding. Even being a pastor, it feels like when it comes to holy things, I'm doing my best to get through rather than getting anywhere. I doubt I'm the only one in this room who's felt run ragged or tired or worn out or depressed or feeling like it's just too much or have just looked at their lives and been buried under a mountain of tasks, needs, bills, maybe caregiving for a loved one or for a pet that all seems endless. And so Elijah, who, by the way, if... Uh, if people during the time of the Old Testament did what we Christians do and make images of people to have in their places of worship, Elijah would be pretty close, right? Elijah would be in everybody's top two. Uh, they're the ones who showed up at the transfiguration uh, with Jesus. Uh, and we find Elijah here probably in the same boat that many of us have been in, or let's be honest, a little worse. I don't think anyone, anyone has ever run from somebody trying to kill them. Uh, if you have, we can, we can talk. Now, as we begin our story, he has walked into the desert for a day and collapses under what we translate as a quote unquote broom tree. Now it's funny, like when you're reading the Bible, sometimes people, when they're translating, they're like, it's the Bible. It's, it needs to be, like, majestic, right? So you say broom tree, and you think of this big, beautiful willow in the woods. You know what these things are, right? Do you guys ever look in the desert, out in the desert, and you see just, like, shrubs? Or these, like, little little pieces of brush out in the desert? This is literally what they are. He is, he is uh, falling down by a desert shrub. And I don't know if you've ever had a day or a night where you just pass out into some shrubbery, but this was Elijah's day. It's probably the worst time of his life. And ironically, it's also after the best time in his life. If you read the whole story in chapter 18, Elijah enters into that famous contest with the priests of, of Baal. Now, you've probably seen or heard of Battle of the Bands, and this was kind of like a battle of the gods. Uh, for those of you like Mary who saw the Rolling Stones last night, this is as rock and roll as the Bible gets. First Kings 18, give it a read. So the priests of this sky god can't get their god to come down and claim their sacrifice no matter how much they rant and scream, but Elijah just says some words. And fire consumes the sacrifice and the entire set. I don't care what band you are. You cannot match these special effects. 
So for losing this particular contest, the consolation prize was getting stomped on by an angry mob and killed by a victorious prophet. Uh, Elijah got to literally be rock and roll and murder false prophets, or not murder, but kill false prophets uh, down by the river. And I don't know if any of you have had a day like the end of The Godfather Part 1, where you get to smite all your enemies, but Elijah got to have that day. Imagine that. I know it's church. Maybe I shouldn't tell you to imagine that. But Elijah got to have that day where he's murdering all his enemies down by a river. Uh, you know, you, you have to feel like he, he's like, I'm at the top of my game. I serve the correct God. And so here's a guy who went from being a prophetic rock star to a wanted criminal hiding out in the woods. It's a towering high to an all-time low at a record pace. He feels it. He is what we would call suicidal. He's not going to do it by his own hand, but he says in one sentence, Oh, Lord, take away my life. He's here in our story asking God if he can die. Now, he'd done everything right. He climbed the ladder. He did all the saintly stuff. He listened to God. He told God's word without flinching. He took care of widows. He faced down injustice and a powerful but very cowardly king. He's brought comfort to people struggling in famine. And in the face of a nation where so many have turned to other gods, Elijah has stayed faithful. His heart is exactly in the right place. His use of the word here, I have been very zealous for the Lord, means that I have done everything that you've asked. This is effort like none other. Paul will talk about his zeal in his former life as a rabbi, and we're about to hear all these wonderful promises in uh, from the prophet Isaiah. And if you hear in Isaiah 9, where it says that the God, God is going to send a Messiah, and what does it say at the very end? The zeal of the Lord of hopes, or of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He has zeal. His heart burns to do God, God's will. All the things that the bad preachers on the radio tell you you need to do, uh, Elijah is doing them. But Elijah for all of this effort, has just collapsed into a bush. No jet plane for this guy, just a bush. All his effort, all his heart, his determination, and all those cliches you hear in sports movies and bad sermons, all of it, it's not good enough. And it is right here, with Elijah passed out in a bush, that God teaches Elijah and all of us what sainthood really is. The angel of the Lord meets Elijah at that moment after he has passed out. You guys have to read the Bible slowly. The angel gently touches him. It's incredible tenderness. And then the angel feeds him. And at first, Elijah is too tired to get up, but anyone who's tried to get a child up to go to school, uh, maybe a little more patience than you have, the angel says a second time, get up, you need to eat, or the journey is going to be too much for you. 
kind of like the end of Moana, if you've seen it. The true cure for the way Elijah has felt was not a pep talk, but a good nap, a cake, and a cup of water. And that uh, meme that floats around the internet about when Elijah said, I'm so angry, I'm about to die, and then God just kind of feeds him and tells him to take a nap. That is a prescription for us as well. But the story for Elijah continues. The angel leads him to real shelter in a cave on Mount Horeb. It's not just passed out in a bush anymore. And it's not, and it's there not in a fury of signs like wind, fire, and earthquakes, right? Elijah had done signs like this with all of the natural elements, right? All that rock and roll stuff that Elijah has spent a career smashing out on kings and false prophets. God finally speaks to Elijah in that famous still or literally thin, small, thin voice and makes promises to him. And says, look, Elijah, you're not the only one. I'm going to raise up 7,000 people who also are just as zealous, who also have not bowed their knees. And even more importantly, God says to Elijah, go make yourself a successor. Don't think that you have to do this all by yourself. Elijah had lashed out because Elijah felt alone. And God said, no, you're not alone. I'm here. And he said that God said that God was there in in three ways. First, by doing what God absolutely loves to do. God is your grandmother, brothers and sisters. God gives food, water, take a nap on my couch. Your grandparents are modeling God for you in that way because this is what God longs to do. God also shows that God is there with Elijah by pursuing Elijah and saying, what are you doing here? Just like with Adam and Eve when they ran away and God said, where are you? God always begins this engagement with God's people through a question. Where are you? What are you doing Let me hear you speak too. And then God shows Elijah that Elijah is not alone by saying, I'm going to give you other people. Elijah, this is not about your personal relationship. Elijah, this is not about all of the check marks. It's not about your effort. This is about my people who I am calling to my name and the promises that I have made never go anywhere. And all of this, brothers and sisters, is a master class about what real saints look like. Our sainthood kicks in not at the point where we've reached peak holiness or or we've uh, achieved some form of uh, secular sainthood, either in a gym or a corner office or getting a a retweet from somebody famous on Twitter. Sainthood is not waiting for us at the finish line. Instead, what is truly holy, good, loving, and merciful, and perfect meets us when we're tired, when we need a break, and when we're passed out in the bushes. Saints aren't made in cloudy perches. 
The best place to find saints is not stained glass windows. Sorry, Peter and Paul. They are blessed. They are sanctified. They are cared for most when they pass out on those prickly bushes. They are not measured in what they do, but they are built up in what they receive. Concrete gifts for concrete needs. Food and drink from the hands of angels. And even silences around them scream with the voice of God. Where are you? What are you doing? And they are never alone. No saint is a one-man wolf pack. Saints are there for one another. Building one another up. Encouraging one another. Even in one generation to the next, saints are bound together in the life and work that we all share. We are all here because of a saint. For me, it was my dad who dragged me to church even though my mom was was working and uh, even though I didn't want to go. For, um, for so many others, there's that person who showed you what faith is. There's that person who opened the Bible for you and made it maybe mildly interesting or showed you how important it was. Our faith would be impossible without the saints who came before us with the Bible in our hands invited us to church, and told us the good news with their words, and as I get to see when I do funeral after funeral, demonstrate the good news with their entire lives. And when I think of the faces of saints who used to grace this place and are here no longer, I tremble with gratitude. We are still, it's God's light, as you know, some of them would be quick to tell me, but it's their light, too, that God has given us. And I am always trembling with gratitude. And I'm a little sad, too, but we'll do support group later. <laughs> Saints are not muscular, spiritual people who triumph over great odds. I'm super excited for the Kurt Warner movie, but that's how NFL quarterbacks are made, not Saints. See, <laughs> Saints are not made. Saints are claimed. They are fed, encouraged, forgiven, blessed, made new, and travel wherever they go and do whatever they are called to do because God calls them and will not leave them to do it alone on their journey. To be a saint means to be somebody who God has made holy with God's zeal, God's raging desire not to give up on anyone called beloved, God's insane effort to claim every weakness, struggle, grief, anguish, sin, and doubt with a cross and say, hey, these are mine and so are you. And we see all this power not only in our own life, but in the lives of those around us. Now, I, uh, lest you think I, I uh, would knock my beloved alma mater, it, the greatest saint I ever knew was Jim Skirl who was our theology teacher. Uh, his Christian manhood class, it was an all-boys school, his Christian manhood class was amazing. He basically just showed you a bunch of movies and you talked about them. And you always thought it was a really easy class, but man, did you ever learn a lot about yourself, a lot about God, and a lot about one another. He was very smart in the way that he taught us. And he was a former basketball player and was about seven feet tall and was a giant in spirit as well as stature. He was very smart. He was hilarious and he was loving. You could never be in a bad mood around him. 
He just would walk the halls. I, I have been a teacher before. I know on my break, I'm not looking for students, but he would just walk the halls looking for people who were having a hard time and talking to them. He just radiated Christian loving. And I was so proud when he agreed to write a reference for me as I entered candidacy. And it was much more kind and glowing than it needed to be or should have been. Now, just to give you a taste of his faith, a fellow faculty member stated that when Jim Skirl's cancer finally started wearing him away, he entered into his final time at the hospital. He got on his knees at the side of the bed and prayed. Now, when the faculty member jokingly said, praying for your soul, Jim Skirl responded with sincerity, no, just thought I would pray for everyone who's been in this bed before me and who will be in it after me. Now, who thinks like that? But for all his great prayers and lessons, one got seared onto me like a tattoo. Now, Mr. Skrull was the teacher who started a Sunday night ministry driving around and meeting people without homes and just like the angel did to Elijah, offering food and, and drink and maybe a little bit of conversation. Now, most of the time, this was a pretty fun uh, affair of hot cocoa and adventures in parts of town that most people avoided. But there was one time outside the convention center where one man spoke to us in shocked disbelief about his condition. The story was hard to hear in his sobs and tears, but we all got the gist, and I'm sure that so many of you in here have lived it. He was recently homeless. Family was far away. He couldn't believe that it was happening. A few of us tried to speak some words of comfort in a way where it almost seemed like we were looking for permission to move along and hand out the rest of our sandwiches and, and Doritos. But in the midst of all that, Jim Skrull stooped down. The man was sitting against the entrance doors to the convention center. He stooped down with his giant frame, grabbed that poor grown man, and held him in a bear hug as real tears flowed down both of their cheeks, and as the man cried, letting out sobs and wails. Lasted maybe 10 minutes, but the impact of that moment on me was more powerful than 10 hours of sermons. I've channeled that moment, the bedsides of more people than I can count. And it's not in my or anyone else's effort but in that embrace, that sainthood finally made sense to me. The memory of that embrace on a cold night as a wintry wind blew in off Lake Erie has been the true icon of sainthood to me, the true image of holiness. That embrace was just a glimpse of the same love which with, with which we hang on to one another, both of us still here and to those who we mourn and remember. And that embrace was a taste of that same giant bear hug, which God gives us now and into eternal life. So if you want to be a saint, just hold on and be held. Amen. Amen.